You know, as women, we often prioritize the health and well-being of others before our own. But did you know that heart disease is the leading cause of death for women in the United States? That's right. And yet it's still often overlooked and misdiagnosed in women. The good news is that heart disease is preventable in many cases, and there are steps we can all take to reduce our risk factors and identify a problem before it's too late. Our guest today is here to help us understand what those risk factors are, how to recognize the symptoms, and more. Because before we care for others, we need to care for ourselves. Before we get started, a couple of definitions of words you're going to hear but may not be familiar with. Occlusion is blockage, as in an artery leading to the heart. Pathophysiology refers to the abnormal changes in the body that are the cause or consequence of disease. Hi, welcome to Beyond the Paper Gown. I'm Dr. Mitzi Crockover, and today we have a very special guest. Dr. Amrita Carve is a cardiologist at the Mount Carmel Health System in Columbus, Ohio. She is also founder and co-director of the Women's Heart Program there. She is board certified in internal medicine, cardiovascular disease, obesity medicine, and echocardiography. So, Amrita, welcome. We're so excited to have you here today. Thank you for having me. It is a delight. I'm just really interested about this Women's Heart Program. The goal of the Women's Heart Program was to improve awareness of heart disease in women, to help enroll more women in clinical trials, and to hope reduce gender disparities in heart disease in women. The pathophysiology between men and women with heart disease is slightly different. So that became uh, much more obvious and much more of a part of our practice as we started building this program. And I want to talk more about that. But, you know, it's really interesting that you talked about wanting to put more women in clinical trials. And I've actually talked with many folks about the dearth of science in women's health in general, and specifically in cardiovascular disease. So talk a little bit more about that. Yeah, so women were not included in many of the original clinical trials uh, looking at heart disease. And it's unclear why this was. I think that people probably just felt it was too complicated to include women at the time because of childbirth and pregnancy and menopause and who knows, you know, what that does to a body. Uh, and so the focus was primarily... All those variables. <laughs> all those variables. So it was just less complicated to exclude uh, women from those clinical trials and focus on men. And actually, you know, work has come a long way since that time, but still much of what we do is dedicated to, uh, or is based on those trials that were based on men. Um, that is very important because we're now learning, and I'm talking only as of the last five years or so, um, even some more subtle differences between the way that women and men present with heart disease. Um, so for example, when you think of heart disease or when people talk about heart disease in the general uh, general public, they're talking about um, 
you know, coronary disease and blockages in the arteries that reduce blood flow and then cause a person to have a heart attack. So in men, those blockages, for example, are more obvious. They're, they are occlusions in large vessels that cause a sudden obstruction in blood flow and then cause the heart muscle that receives that blood to die because it's not getting any oxygen. Um, but what we're finding in women is that they can also have some muscle death of the myocardium or heart muscle even without having the traditional large blockages that men do. So with men, those arteries can easily be visualized under, you know, using dye and using x-ray technology. However, with women, the occlusions are in much smaller vessels and are much more distal. If you can think of a tree and the very distal stems and branches, that's where some of the disease is in women. Um, or they can have very mild disease in the coronary arteries that still causes some muscle death. So this is just one of the many examples of how women experience heart disease differently than men. And this is only being discovered in the last know, five to 10 years at the most. You know, it's interesting, and I'm sure you have other stories as well, but um, as a clinician, I will always remember a patient who came in in her 50s, slender, white, smoker. It's a new patient going through the history and physical, and she talked about having arm pain when she walked. And, um, oh, by the way, she had high cholesterol and I believe high blood pressure. So I said, well, you know, have you talked with your other doctors about this arm pain, you know, because it goes away when you stop? She says, yeah, they always say it's arthritis. And I said, you know, I'm a little bit concerned about this. It was a weekend or it was a Friday. It was what was considered stable angina, meaning it was mm -hmm. only happening when she exerted herself. I sent her home with some aspirin and some nitro, told her how to use it if she had any, you know, any issues and um, scheduled her for some tests. And I came back on Monday and the head of cardiology, who was also the head of the Department of Medicine, said, let's see, we saw your patient in the ER. She went from having a stable angina to unstable angina, meaning it just, you know, basically mm -hmm. the pain started happening. It was just very fortuitous that she had seen me because she had, you know, the she had known how to take the aspirin and the nitro on board before she got there. And you know, it just, to me, that was also the poster child of, uh, you know, a woman that might have been missed or was mm -hmm. literally missed because she didn't fit that mold of that, that man coming in and clutching yeah. his chest. So mm -hmm. I'm sure you have other stories similar to that. But, and again, when you see patients like this, what are you looking for in terms of a history that anybody here might be listening to think, oh, well, maybe maybe I've got something going on. Yes. Well, the traditional risk factors that apply to men also do apply to women. So smoking, diabetes, high cholesterol, overweight, all of those things still apply. But women actually have some more risk factors that go beyond the traditional risk factors, including autoimmune disease, such as lupus or rheumatoid arthritis, um, even sarcoidosis, amyloidosis, or any other autoimmune disease also is associated with a higher risk of heart disease. Um, some other risk factors that women might have 
maybe actually developing earlier in life, such as issues related to their pregnancy. So, you know, if they have preeclampsia or, or gestational diabetes or gestational hypertension, or then complications after their pregnancy, like peripartum cardiomyopathy, which I guess technically falls in the heart disease category itself. But some of those early life um, type of uh, issues can also cause problems later. One of the other things that's important to think about now is uh, actually radiation therapy for certain types of cancers and also certain types of chemotherapy for um, breast cancer or any other uh, radiation type of injury to the chest is also a risk factor for heart disease. So we actually screen for all of these um, during our, our new patient appointments in the Women's Heart Program, just wanting to acknowledge some of these other things that are definitely unique to women, um, especially as it relates to cancer and autoimmune disease. With respect, especially now with COVID and the lockdowns, a lot of people didn't go and get their regular care, let alone their preventive screening. So let's take a moment and just remind folks what kinds of screening they should be participating in to understand their risk of uh, heart disease. So the most basic screenings when you go to a primary care doctor are incredibly important. And those are just getting the weight checked, the high blood pressure checked, and you know, a screen for diabetes and high cholesterol. And any friendly neighborhood internist would do all of those things and screen for all of those mm-hmm. things. Um, and th- those that's really like the foundation of where all of that screening begins. So even if even if you just haven't seen your, you know, regular doctor in a while, it's important to go do that. And they may seem like basic things, but they're all extremely important. Um, then, um, you know, other things to to check on after such long times, or I guess being inside are to just get out and start exercising and see if everything feels right. And, you know, that's how we're noticing things is that people have actually been sitting pretty for a couple of years in their homes and have been <laughs> have not been doing much, you know, of trying to avoid COVID. And then once they get out and get out and about, they're noticing that things are not quite feeling the same as they used to. And, and then it's a good time to go to the internist and get checked out. And assuming folks, again, do check with their doctors to make sure that uh, it's safe to, to do an exercise program, what is a good general exercise program that will really help protect against cardiovascular disease? Any exercise program that requires any moving at all is great. <laughs> so um, whether that's, you know, getting out and about and walking for just a couple of minutes, um, that's wonderful. People have different baselines. Not everyone starts on a level playing field. So any amount of activity sure. that's better than the current level of activity is a good place to start. However, the AHA does recommend 30 minutes of moderate um, physical activity um, five times a week and then with, with vigorous uh, activity three times a week and vigorous would be like a total of about an hour of vigorous activity. And that's, you know, to the point where it's making you sweat. Um, I I just have one other thing that I would like to add to your point about Please. screening. Um, there is a great test for younger women. And by younger, I mean approximately under the age of 70 um, to have um, 
to screen for heart disease. And one of those things that we offer is something called a calcium score. And a calcium score is like a fancy x-ray that looks at the amount of plaque buildup or cholesterol buildup in the arteries. And using that, you can sort of calculate a, a five-year risk or a 10-year risk to determine um, you know, how likely they are to develop heart disease at those times. And then you can also start them on cholesterol medications when their cholesterol would otherwise be considered normal. So this is a an excellent screening tool and anybody who just wants to be extra proactive beyond just the routine doctor's appointments. We think about the typical, again, the typical person having a heart attack as this white male and, yes. you know, who's maybe in his 50s or 60s. I guess what I'm getting to is that there are different groups who may be at more risk and just wanted to know if we have enough information to make some statements about that. Yeah, that's an excellent question. And there are actually um, a few different ethnic groups that are considered to be at higher risk. So previously, this was mostly focused on um, the Black and Hispanic populations, which are certainly at higher risk. However, South Asians and Asians are also becoming higher risk. Uh, they actually develop heart disease at lower BMIs. So in fact, the BMI cutoff or the body mass index cutoff for Asians and South Asians is actually 23, whereas opposed to um, white uh, or Caucasians, it is a cutoff of 25. The reason that, is, that it is like that is because high cholesterol, diabetes, and all of those risk factors happen at a lower BMI in this age group. So now the American Heart Association recognizes Asians and South Asians as a high-risk group. So that's also, you know, something to consider if you're worried about heart disease. It, it does definitely happen at a higher rate in Asians now than it did before. According to Dr. Carvey, Black and Hispanic people have higher rates of most types of heart disease, including blockages from coronary artery disease, heart failure, or rhythm disorders. I asked her about the reason for these higher risks, and she noted that socioeconomic disparities play a part in access to health care, healthy foods, and safe places to walk and exercise. But there are additional reasons as well. For example, blacks are also likelier to develop autoimmune disease compared to uh, Caucasians. So even the autoimmune disease can add an extra layer of complexity and extra risk relative to somebody who does not have autoimmune disease. Also, the higher rate of diabetes in Hispanics can also cause many diabetes-related heart complications um, versus somebody who's not Hispanic or diabetic. And I would assume that that's true for the Native American um, population as well? Yes. We talk a lot about family history of heart disease being a risk factor. So what exactly do we mean by that? A family history is considered a risk factor if it occurs in a first-degree relative male under the age of 50 or a female under the age of 55. So, of course, it's like a, a spectrum. You can't say that they were, you know, when they were 60 and 63, it's not considered a family, a family history. But um, those are the numbers that are used as cutoffs for like a genetic versus perhaps lifestyle um, uh, predisposition. So I still think it's important to know whether or not one's parents or family members had heart disease at any age and, and to discuss it with the physician. Sure. And, you know, speaking of age, it seems that we are seeing 
you know, maybe it just seems like that anecdotally, younger women um, coming in and having more heart problems. Is that something that you're seeing? I think this is absolutely true, and it's something we have to pay attention to. And the reason why is because women are also developing obesity at younger ages. So um, those other risk factors like high cholesterol and, and high blood pressure are causing women to actually have heart attacks because they're getting both of those risk factors due to obesity at younger ages. So uh, it is sadly not uncommon when I see somebody in their early 30s have having mm. you know a heart attack or even bypass surgery because of the other risk factors. That said, I would say still reassuringly, it is without those risk factors, it is incredibly rare to see women have heart disease in their 30s. Another scenario, which we're also seeing more often now, is that women are also getting pregnant at older and older ages. So now when women may, you know, previously have been pregnant in their 20s, they're now becoming pregnant in their 30s and even 40s sometimes. And actually being pregnant at those ages does increase the risk of peripartum cardiomyopathy or heart failure related to pregnancy and also increases the risk of other complications of pregnancy, including hypertension and diabetes. So, you know, it's sort of like a, a bimodal problem with young women having heart disease at, in their 30s because they're obese versus having uh, women, you, you know, get pregnant at later ages and then having issues related to their hearts because of pregnancy in later age. So... The role of stress and sleep in heart disease. So important. So important to think about how stress and sleep are involved because really, you know, in fact, there's, there's, have you heard of broken heart syndrome? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So broken heart syndrome is one of those syndromes that um, can happen when a person is either so stressed out or so devastated from some terrible, terrible life trauma and i've i've seen this happen anywhere from like a person getting really really angry at the electric company to like <laughs> losing a spouse to like hearing mm -hmm. raccoons scrape away at their back door all three of those oh, things wow. have led to <laughs> a broken heart syndrome or takatsubo cardiomyopathy in various people that i've i've cared for um so stress definitely does play a role in in many different aspects of heart um muscle pumping function. And in fact, in fact, one thing that I, I would like to bring to attention is that uh, in, we were talking about racial disparities in, you know, Hispanics versus Caucasians. And yes, it, one a few interesting studies recently have, sh have shown that despite the fact that Hispanics have higher risk factors for heart disease and actually do have a heart disease probably at a higher rate than Caucasians. Their life expectancy is actually similar to even higher than Caucasians. And part of that is just due to their extensive social networks. Um, and they value, you know, not being alone and being with other people and their free time. And that is a huge stress relief. You know, the one thing that I, I think that maybe in medical school, I was taught that estrogen was protective. It was previously thought that heart, that you know estrogen was protective, but it's now become 
known that estrogen supplementation actually, especially after the age of 70 or well after menopause, <clears throat> is um, actually increasing the risk of heart attack. So we encourage people who are older to not take any estrogen therapy. However, if they are feeling other issues related to menopause like vaginal dryness or hot flashes, there are plenty of other medications actually available on the market. Some are antidepressants and anti-anxiety medications that can also help with hot flashes. Um, also, estrogen cream, like for vaginal lubrication, does not carry the same risk as oral estrogen therapy. One other interesting nuance is that, um, you know, after some of those trials came out uh, showing that women who get estrogen uh, supplementation have increased risk of heart attacks. There has now been new knowledge that when estrogen is given just right around menopause, it seems to have less of a detrimental effect versus later. So probably the earlier that you can, if, right. if, uh, just if for the symptoms, yes, of the just for the symptoms and then, and then to abandon it later would be more helpful. Yeah. And I was, you know, I, I remember that very uh, well, we were giving, um, you know, is prescribing estrogen for all the preventive effects of heart disease, osteoporosis, mm -hmm. cognition, as well as, you know, the um, uh, hot flashes and other symptoms. And then the study came out and it said all the things that you said. So we backed away. And now there's more data, as you noted, that it, it's certainly better for some of those other things. And I guess I wanted to ask you if you provide estrogen in that window of perimenopause, it seems to have, for example, better effects on bone and on brain. Are you also seeing that it may have also that, that protective effect on the heart? I think that's pretty much inconclusive right now. I don't think there's okay. any benefit saying that it's helpful, probably just net neutral or not increasing risk of MI terribly. What are some of the symptoms someone might experience and they don't know if this is heart disease or not? Um, or a heart attack, how would you alert folks in terms of what they should be looking for? The number one um, presenting symptom of a heart attack is chest pain. So I think that's very important to remember. The American Heart Association actually started, you know, a campaign, Go Red for Women, and mm -hmm. talked about how, you know, women can also experience other symptoms beyond chest pain. Um, one of the unfortunate sort of unexpected consequences of this heavy campaigning is that women may think that um, that they should be experiencing something else other than chest pain for it to be a warning sign of a heart attack and then ignore chest pain when it does actually present itself. So that is not that is not the intention. Um, chest pain is still the number one presenting symptom for men and women, so it should it should be um, observed and then you know taken seriously with a call to 911. Uh, but some of the other symptoms that people may experience is um, shoulder pain, jaw pain, arm pain, neck pain, especially anything that's associated with exertion as your example was right in the beginning with that patient that you had with, with walking and then getting shoulder pain. Also, any jaw pain with exertion, that, that is another common one. Shortness of breath, indigestion, nausea, vomiting, um, or a feeling of pressure or heaviness on the chest, like something is sitting on the chest. And so if that occurs, what's the next step? 
The next step is to call 911 or go to the ER. And then, you know, again, we hear about these stories where women will go and feel maybe dismissed or it being uh, attributed to anxiety. So how can someone advocate for themselves um, in a way that is important in the midst of obviously this tremendous um, dis- discomfort? Yes. And it's unfortunate, first of all, I'd like to mention that one would have to advocate for themselves. But <laughs> unfortunately, that is the way the world works. And we've seen time and time again that people who do advocate for themselves, uh, you know, eventually get the care that they need. So I would say um, to just be very descriptive with the symptoms. And, and if something is not feeling right or feeling normal, then to make it very clear and to not worry that one is bothering the doctor or causing an inconvenience because even the doctor cares very deeply and would not would not feel as though he or she is being inconvenienced and in fact they only know how much to you know worry about the situation or be concerned based on the patient's also level of concern So I think if something is not feeling right, that definitely helps other people also be more aggressive in in what they're looking for. That's such a good um, point, because I think especially women, not to stereotype us, but we're very good at minimizing. You know, I think it's okay. You know, it's not as bad as as it might be, that kind of thing. Um, So to, I guess, own your pain, own your discomfort uh, is probably really key. I think that's really important. Yeah. I think women have been told also throughout their entire lifetime, so you're just being anxious, just don't be so nervous. And, you know, we hear that all the time as women. And unfortunately, it can then really become a problem at the time that you really shouldn't be ignoring it. (laughs) Right. Plus, you know, if they're not mutually exclusive, yes, I can be anxious and have a heart attack. That is it. That is an excellent point. (laughs) They go hand in hand. In fact, if you were having a heart attack, you would be anxious too. (laughs) Yeah. So, so talk a little bit also about some of the numbers, though, that we're seeing. Um, if a woman goes to the ER, is being um, treated appropriately, diagnosed, um, are her outcomes going to be as good as a man's? Unfortunately, outcomes for women are just not, have not been great compared to outcomes for, for men. And I think that is based on many different reasons. One of the reasons, as I was alluding to earlier, is based on their their presentation of uh, coronary disease. And in fact, I literally just had this example this morning. There was this woman who, you know, went to the hospital for a heart attack, had a mild heart attack. They did a heart catheterization to look for any blockages, and hers were just mild. Um, and, you know, so she didn't get a stent, but she, you know, she's put on a few of the appropriate medications. But then when I saw her in clinic, I was thinking, gee, you know, you should really be on a few other medications because you did have a legitimate heart attack, even if you didn't get a stent. I mean, all of your symptoms were right. You know, it may not have been a, a, a single discrete blockage, but your risk is actually no different, um, I mean, not no different, but it is it is still elevated. And so I, I did actually put her on a few other medications to lower her risk. And so I think this is not due to any intentional bias, but I think that because the 
differences in pathophysiology between men and women are not fully understood yet, or maybe are just beginning to be understood. Um, on paper, a woman's presentation of of a heart attack might look more benign than, you know, a man's, but uh, really she is still at elevated risk. So that's one of the reasons why um, women's outcomes might be slightly worse. Um, some of the other reasons why women's outcomes could be worse is because they are usually the caregivers for their families and are busy taking care of um, you know, their husbands and their children and their parents, and they're less likely to be able to go to all of the rehabilitation, keep up with their own appointments and their own mm. health. And that can also, you know, you know, make it harder for them to, to get what they need. What are you seeing in terms of your colleagues becoming more aware of these differences? How are we getting the word out as clinicians and physicians that this really does need to be attended to? The awareness is increasing tremendously. You know, a lot of men now are, are, a lot of cardiologists in general are recognizing some of these unique aspects of endothelial or arterial dysfunction in women and um, their different ways of presenting with heart attacks much more than they used to a few years ago. And a lot of that credit goes to, you know, my my older mentors, Dr. Gulati, and many other notable female cardiologists who have researched this quite extensively and have um, put it into the guidelines from the American Heart Association and American College of Cardiology. And just within the last five years, this ended up being a, um, a consensus statement in their um, guidelines. And so because of that, actually, things are really changing. And I think there is promise for better outcomes um, for women in the future. Before we finish up, we've talked a lot about cardiovascular disease, basically, you know, blockages in the arteries, not getting blood and oxygen to the heart. What are some of the other heart disease and heart issues that women may suffer from as well that we need to be aware of? There are many different facets to the heart. Blockages are just one of them, um, and that is involving the arteries that go to the heart muscle. Sometimes people can have issues with the heart muscle itself unrelated to the um, to the arteries, and that is heart failure. That is when the heart muscle becomes weak or very stiff. That can lead to heart failure. Um, other issues could be related to to the electrical conduction system of the heart um, or even the valves of the heart. And the valves are sort of like the doors that connect the different chambers um, of the heart to each other. And so are you seeing differences between men and women in those areas as well? Some of the differences for valvular heart disease and conduction and also heart failure um, can be heavily influenced by autoimmune disease and by... Mm -hmm. Uh, cancer treatments. So chemotherapy and radiation therapy can affect those significantly. So any woman that has um, autoimmune disease or has had breast cancer, um, radiation or treatment with chemotherapy would be at higher risk for any of those other complications. And so I would assume that they're just more closely monitored? They are. They are. In fact, there's a whole new world of cardio-oncology being developed 
um, dedicated to just the overlap between cancer treatments and heart disease. So before we do sign off, um, I wanted to make sure that we touched on the important items that you think are most important to our listeners. I think it's important to be aware of one's risk for heart disease and to think more broadly about, about what would put a person at higher risk. And that's probably a recommendation more for healthcare professionals rather than, you know, patients themselves. But, um, you know, to get out and exercise and do the most that they can within whatever means that they have to improve their heart health, but also to not take it too seriously because you only live <laughs> once and the arteries by the age of 80 are already showing the karma that has been there from a whole lifetime. So <laughs> after, the, after the age of 80, you can do whatever you want. <laughs> I love that. That's great. Dr. Amrita Carve, thank you so much for spending time with us today and for sharing your knowledge. Thank you for having me. This is such an important topic. So here are the takeaways. While men may have obvious blockages in their coronary arteries, women tend to have blockages in smaller arteries that may not be as apparent. These blockages may not be as evident on testing and may lead to undertreatment of symptoms. The number one symptom of a heart attack is chest pain, but other symptoms include nausea, arm pain, jaw pain, and fatigue. If you think you're experiencing a heart attack, get help immediately. And if you have had these symptoms in the past, tell your doctor. The key risk factors for coronary artery disease are high blood pressure, high cholesterol, diabetes, smoking, obesity, and family history of heart disease. In addition, radiation to the chest, some chemotherapies, autoimmune disease, and a history of complications in pregnancy can also increase the risk of heart disease. It's important to consult your physician and undergo screening tests such as measuring blood pressure, cholesterol, and blood sugar. Other tests, such as a calcium CT, may help provide more information. We can help prevent heart disease and specifically coronary artery disease by maintaining a healthy lifestyle that includes diet, exercise, and not smoking. It's also important to reduce stress and get good sleep. And don't forget those regular checkups and screening. I hope you enjoyed this episode. For more information on this topic and many others, please visit us at beyondthepapergown.com. Follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and TikTok. And don't forget to subscribe to our podcast wherever you get your podcast so you can stay up to date on the issues that impact women's health. Our podcast is produced by Patrick Shambayati and me, and our associate producer is Kyla McMillian. Until next time, be well. <laughs>